from Studio A in Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. So, in full disclosure, there was a slight imperfection in that opening. Number one, uh, I am still your host and moderator, Justin Russell, but we are in Studio B here at Podcast Village for this week's series of recordings uh, because uh, people much, much more important than we are are in Studio A, and we're not going to tell them no for so many reasons. Uh, joining me in studio, as they do every time we record this, uh, to my right, ironically, she is the former spokes press media goddess at the State Department. She's the one we know as Erin Harbaugh. Hello, Erin. Uh, oh, no, we got no mic on Erin. Uh, Get closer, try it. Hello. No, nothing. Can you hear me now? There oh, we go. Can hear me now? There we go. Now Hello. we got it. Hello. Good afternoon. Hi, Aaron. Hey, uh, joining us from an undisclosed location in the Bay State of Massachusetts, he is the author of such great books as American Politics on the Rocks. He is the one we know as Rich Rubino. Rich, how are you? I'm doing well, Justin. Thank you. Hey, hey Rich, you're up that way. Um, yes. I saw the media reports that, was there really a gang of thug kids that really put spray paint on Plymouth Rock? Yes, yes. That yes. is horrible. That is. I hope they catch yeah. those punks. We'll talk about that later. Uh, in the control room, we've got uh, Rob the Engineer behind the glass, Charlie Burney, our host and benevolent, benevolent person that keeps us honest, also behind the glass. I think Maddie the Engineer is waving somewhere there, too, but she's working. She's obviously working the more important podcast than ours. And uh, joining us for the first time, he is uh, Tom the Intern. Hi, Tom. Afternoon. Yeah, how do you like the internship so far? Going well. You got to you got to get close to the mic. It's going very well. There you go. Nice. Hey, we've got a lot to talk about. There's so much happening in politics right now. But you know, the the, the one thing that I do want to talk about is I, I, I want to talk about what's happening over at uh, the Department of Justice. Uh, in case you have not seen it, there have been some. Shockwaves, reverberations, there's been criticisms, there's been concerns uh, just about how uh, the Attorney General Bill Barr has been working the Department of Justice. Some of the decisions that he's made, some of the, deci- some of the decisions that have been implemented as a result of possible influence from the president. Is this a real problem? <clears throat> the The news coming out... As we record this, excuse me. <clears throat> I hate it when that happens. Uh, the news coming out as we record this today was there were there were two major, uh, one pardon and uh, one communication of sentence. The pardon going, the president has pardoned Eddie DiBartolo, the former uh, real estate uh, strip mall mall king and former owner of the San Francisco 49ers. And he's also communicated the sentence of former Illinois governor and reality TV star who actually starred on his own TV show, Rod Blagojevich. And yes, there's extra credit points if you can spell Blagojevich. You can tweet us at Backroom Politic on Twitter. Um, Richard Bino, let's start about the history of what what has been going on because this also ties into the uh the Flynn 
and the impeachment case. You know, Roger Stone's case is now before Judge Jackson here in D.C. Have we seen a president openly use the Department of Justice, let alone his powers of pardon, the way that we've seen Trump do it in particular in his first term? No, not the way we've seen it. We've seen plenty of pardons. Usually they're reserved for the last day of the presidency. For example, when George H.W. Bush pardoned Casper Weinberger, the former Secretary of Defense involved in the Iran-Contra affair, there were a lot of people came out and said that there was some sort of a quid pro quo there. Bill Clinton, on the last day of office, pardoned Susan McDougal, the former Whitewater partner. And, of course, that was supposed to be the big story was would he pardon her. But the big story became the pardon of Mark Rich because his, his – um, his wife Denise Rich had given about $100,000 to the Clinton to the um, to the Clinton Library, so that became a huge issue. The one, the most important pardon, probably in American history, of course, was 1974 when Gerald Ford pardoned Richard Nixon for all crimes committed between 1969 and his resignation in 1974. But I don't remember a situation where the president can specifically use the Justice Department in this way. Rob Glavich, by the way, is an interesting case because. His family did everything they possibly could to get Barack Obama to pardon him. Remember, Barack Obama was the, was the United States senator who we later was found that Rob Bogoyevich was doing everything he could in his power to either get money for his own campaign, to get some sort of an appointment, or to get some money for his personal use by essentially, by essentially using, his, um, using the Senate seat that Barack Obama was vacating for his own personal use. And it turned out that – so he was caught. He went to jail. And Barack Obama's family absolutely—I mean, uh, Barack Obama's family absolutely excoriated Barack Obama for not pardoning for not pardoning um, Rob Obama, and of course Donald Trump. But, he, but, but Rich, what he did was illegal. I mean, I mean, the, yeah. the, I mean, the guy is literally on the phone implicating himself, saying, "Hey, how about you pay me, and I'll get you a yeah, Senate seat." Yes, no, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's not quid pro quo. That's just plain out racketeering. Yes, and of course, Bogoyevich wrote his own book called The Governor, and in that he says that he, he, he essentially declares himself innocent in there. He's kind of he's backtracked on that since he's been in jail somewhat. He's actually written articles from his, um, from his jail cell about pardoning, about other things. And Donald Trump, of course, had a relationship with him because after he had resigned, or should I say after he was, he was impeached and convicted just about unanimously in the Illinois, in the Illinois State Senate, he then – during that time between his between his his conviction right. and his jail sentence, he had the he had the pleasure of appearing on Celebrity Apprentice, where he just established a relationship with one Donald J. Trump. So of course Donald J. Trump returned the favor, and that's the big story. And other stories, like for example Michael Milken, the junk bond king, who was also pardoned, have kind of gone by the wayside because everyone's saying, "Why did he pardon Robert Glavis?" And was it because of their personal relationship? There's another name in here that that uh, kind of draws attention. And that is uh, former uh, former Homeland Security mogul and uh, New York City law enforcement figure <clears throat> Bernie Carrick was also pardoned as part of this. And as you had mentioned, uh, the uh, the junk bond king Mike, Michael Milken and uh, Eddie DiBartolo, as we mentioned. Here's the here's the question though about this is do we have any indication that this is 
been going through the traditional, usually this goes through the Department of Justice, which is going to lead into our bigger topic. This goes through the Department of Justice, and the Department of Justice usually has a team of people that reviews the request for commutation or the request for pardons, and they usually have to give a, you know, a, yeah, this would be okay, this one eh, is going to be touchy, or a hard yes or no. The question I have is, is this process being used? Do we have any indication Aaron, that this is being used at all. I am not a legal analyst or scholar, but um, I think it's fair to say that the way things are supposed to work within the executive branch and the way they seem to be working are two different stories. I mean, that, that's that's a big problem. I mean, I mean, you know, I I, I look at this, Rich. And quite frankly, the disturbing part about it is it is at the pleasure of the president, but it's one of the, is this one of those situations where just because you have the power doesn't mean necessarily that you have to run it on all eight at all times? Um, yeah, I mean, I know that, you know, there's certainly, there is a process, there is a process, there's a, you know, entire pardoning process, but the president can essentially overrule it because in federal crimes, the president has the power. I mean, you know, Bill Clinton pardoned his own brother on the last day, Roger Clinton, for example. Um, so sometimes, you know, there is sometimes that the president knows somebody. He pardoned Richard R- Dick Riley, the secretary of education. He pardoned his son, I believe. I believe Dale Bumper's son was arrested, the former senator from Arkansas, was arrested for marijuana charges. He was able to expunge that from the record. So, yeah, there's a process, but the president essentially, you know, he has the pardoning power. And the pardoning power appears, I mean, I shouldn't say it's absolute because there are certainly crimes, state crimes, for example, where the president has no power over where governors, for example, have power. It's interesting, when Mitt Romney was governor of Massachusetts, for example, he, his, his policy was that, the, was that the legal system has to work in its place. Right. He pardoned zero, he pardoned nobody whatsoever, including somebody who shot somebody with a, <coughs> who was trying to get a job in the, um, with the state police. He had shot somebody with a BB gun when he was younger, and he had, a, he had, he had it on a sentence. And, and, there was, and the, per, the person, as well as the person he'd shot with the BB gun, both said, can you pardon, can you pardon this person, please, so we can, get up, so we can further his career. And Romney said no to that. But for the presidential, it's certainly it's definitely something that you can use. Um, by the way, Bill Clinton also pardoned Fife Symington, the former governor of Arizona, Republican, who actually once saved his life. Right. Um, believe it or not, Bill Clinton was drowning, and Fife Symington saved his life. So I guess, you know, the, pre- the president has almost absolute power on federal issues. Yeah. Dan Lipner strolling in. Fashionably late to backroom politics. Hello, Daniel. I'm always fashionable. You are. Fa- that Syracuse ad is really doing it. Go I orange. Tell you. Go orange. Here we go. Um, we're talking about uh, DOJ, the issues of DOJ, the issues with the pardons. I'm sure you saw the latest round of pardons that were announced, including Rod Bergoyevich, uh, Michael Milken, uh, Bernie Carrick, and Eddie DiBartolo. The, the question I have is... Is, is this a situation, I'm going to pose the question I asked to Rich, from a legal standpoint, is this a situation where the president has the power, just doesn't necessarily mean he needs to use it, or is this a smart political move for Donald Trump to throw this out there? And once we get through this, we're going to go into the deeper question of the problems at DOJ. Um, just because you can doesn't mean you should, and the president pardoning uh, all those folks... Um, yeah, it's an interesting take on things. I mean, does, does it strike you as odd the fact that it's Michael Milken, junk bond king, garbage financier, uh, Rod Blagojevich, who was on Donald Trump's 
reality TV show. And a Democrat. And and a Democrat. And then <laughs> Bernie Carrick, who is the disgraced former uh, commissioner of corrections when he was arrested. And set former appointee. And a friend of Giuliani. He was going to be a friend of Giuliani, and he was going to be uh, the possible Secretary of Homeland Security under Bush at one time. Does it surprise you that all these people are just the one big connection is they all happen to be in that circle of Trump? I mean, as far as with this president, no, it's not a big surprise. But the real question is, what's he really playing with? And my guess is. Uh, his friend, Mr. Stone, uh, might be the real beneficiary of all of this. Um, the the president making these pardons, the way he's doing it, generally, and I, I walked right when Rich was doing the history of the pardons, but normally those kind of pardons are done on your way out the door. <laughs> uh, and it's usually reviewed by folks at the Department of Justice. That's new. <laughs> I, but that, but that's that's still the process now. No, well, it's 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 an executive creative process, thanks in part to uh, the Bush administration's response to the pardons that Bill Clinton uh, had going out the door. Um, that said, W's administration did commute Scooter Libby's uh, sentence in in response to uh, a arguably a favor asked right. by by then Vice President Cheney. That also skipped that same process. So it's it's interesting how it's being done and why it's being done. And it is somewhat disturbing that the president is using these powers the way he is, like it's a toy. Right. Um, it, it's it's meant to be a at least how it was envisioned from my reading of American history. It was it it, it was seen as the 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 executive showing. Um, Showing mercy. mercy. It was a mercy call, clause in the Constitution and the powers of the government or right. the president. And it's unclear of any of those people listed on the current list of pardons uh, what mercy they actually deserve for what they've done or have done in hindsight uh, to to try and to try and repair the damage they caused. I haven't seen any of that, but right. aside from they've pled their case to. Court of Trump. Trump. Right. Aaron. By the way, just a quick oh. note here. Scooter Libby was actually Mark Rich's attorney that got Mark Rich par- successfully pardoned. So an interesting interesting phenomenon there. Did not know that. Interesting point. Yep. Thank you, Rich. Aaron Harbaugh. Well, I think this is obvious, but the elephant in the room is the timing about these pardons. Obviously, you know, as, as was mentioned several times, these pardons are generally done right before the executive... Uh, out of office. So the fact that Trump is issuing these pardons right now, um, and quite a list of them, I think also taking a look at the offenses for which he's pardoning is is rather interesting, to use uh, others' words. Right. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, this is not precedented. I, I think, you know, we certainly do have other precedents, but in this case, the timing the the litany right. <laughs> of, right. of 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 those pardoned and 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 the the list of offenses is is unprecedented. Yeah. And and <laughs> Richard Bino, I mean, we talked about the history, but Dan Lipner, when we look at the current legal climate that's kind of engulfing D.C. right now, we just had a I think it was 
over 2,000 former and I think current DOJ employees and officials sign on to a letter calling for Bill Barr's resignation as attorney general. What's the back? What's the back line on that? I mean, to be clear, at the bipartisan list of people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the people who do their jobs, career or even as uh, U.S. attorneys, um, as a point as appointed U.S. attorneys or the career U.S. attorneys, those folks are as close to legal superheroes as you get. These are some very impressive human beings. They don't take their jobs lightly. They are very serious in what they do, and for that number of people to sign on to a letter, that's a serious thing. And I'm quite certain every last one of them has juice on the hill. Um, you don't get those jobs by accident. And the the idea that you have 2,000 people saying that, that, uh, that the attorney general is behaving inappropriately in terms of the how justice is being handled, literally, not just the Justice Department, but the actual act of justice is being handled in the Justice Department, is challenging. And truthfully, it's really scary as far as how, it, how, a, how a functioning democracy goes forward with their faith in the rule of law. But, but here's the question I have is, the attorney general serves at the pleasure of the president. Like everybody else in the cabinet— Bill Barr serves at the pleasure of the president, although he does I, I, serve— I would already challenge that phrase. It, Why? While normally that is true— is, It's not normally true. That's fact. No. In this case, it's it's serving for the pleasure of the president, not at the pleasure of the president, meaning whatever— Okay, okay. okay. I am, no, I am, no, no, I am no, not that... being sarcastic when I'm saying this. I am literally saying what it, what what causes the president, president pleasure is what he expects from his cabinet agencies. At the same time, I mean, that wait doesn't a minute. mean it's legal. It, well, it doesn't mean it's right. I mean, legal. <laughs> That's true. Or, I mean, if he was doing anything illegal, I mean, then Congress would have an impeachment. I can't believe I'm saying the word <laughs> talking about Bill Barr, but they would have they would have reason to impeach the Attorney General, which they have the oversight and the authority to do. But what we're talking about now is we're talking about a situation where we have a Attorney General that arguably is either serving as the true external outside counsel to the president and the president's personal lawyer, or is the attorney general serving as the lawyer for the American people? What's, I mean, what's the reality in this, Dan? I mean, that's the question. <laughs> and the, but, the, the, what, what, what should that are, answer be? The, the, the answer should be serving for the interests of the American people, following the guidance of what the president would like to put a specific weight on or or putting more resources towards. For example, if they wanted to, say, have the attorney general focus more on on uh, child trafficking and have the feds really focus on that at the Department of Justice, that would be well within the purview of the president to lean on the attorney general to say, this is the focus of my administration, to work on uh, corporate corruption. Well, within the the on the well, same day that he pardons Mike Milliken. <laughs> oh, come on, that was a little good. Eh. Well, you know, Bill Clinton was considering actually pardoning him as well, and chose not to. That's true too. 
That's true, too. Well, I think you can look at other agencies, too, where the uh, secretary, the cabinet level appointee is also, you know, there's there's a very murky situation between are they serving the president or are they serving the agency and the interests of the American public? And I think you can easily point to other cabinet level officials that, that may be in a similar kind of situation, maybe not as obvious, but there are questions about their actions. Right. So going back to my, my intern right. days in the White House, I was an intern in the Office of Cabinet Affairs in the White House for the really? years. Yes. I did not know that. And there there were there were exactly three agencies at the time. I suspect it's now four with the Department of Homeland Security, but three agencies that are considered to be above politics. That is Department of State, Department of Defense, and the Department of Justice. All three of which are supposed to be above politics. Not that their heads don't have a political pedigree. They do. But as far as how their agencies are actually handled, they are supposed to be above politics. Aaron? Well, it's policy. I mean, we have to remember this is the executive branch. They are supposed to implement. I mean, they are the brains and the bronze behind the U.S. government. They are there to implement the president's policy. And the cabinet level officials have to do a delicate dance of obviously pleasing the executive in chief as well as managing their own agencies. But uh, they have to do that, like Daniel mentioned, in, in a very specific you know, there are very specific guidelines and laws that they have to follow per their own agencies. So, so then, Ridge, why why all the why all the pushback on what Bill Barr is doing? If we go off of what Aaron was saying, Bill Barr is just taking what the president sees as his initiatives, as his policies, and putting them into play. I mean, yeah, I mean that's pretty much true. I mean, of course, the policies have to go at least in some cases would have to go through the United States Congress too. But it is true there has been some independence from attorney generals in history. I'm thinking back, for example, after Bill Clinton, which he later said was one of his worst mistakes he'd made as president when he renewed the um, independent counsel law. And Janet Reno, at least the first term of the administration, the attorney general at the time, kept on appointing more and more independent counsels to Bill Clinton's chagrin. So there has been some independence. But in the case of Mr. Barr, you know, it's a fascinating phenomenon because Mr. Barr was not really a Trump person. He's an establishment Republican, you know, going back to the administration of George H.W. Bush, where he served as the office of attorney general. So you, I've always wondered why it was that he chose to kind of come out of private practice, come out of retirement and join the Trump administration and go through all the flack that he's going to have, what's going to happen is the history. His history is now he's going to be remembered for what he's done under the Trump administration, as opposed to everything he's done in his you know illustrative political career. So it's fascinating, but he has chosen. He could either be an independent, um, he could either be an independent avatar, if you will, or he can be essentially Donald Trump's lackey, and he's it, chosen to be Donald Trump's lackey. I mean, th- this is probably not going to be the last time we see an attorney general that, again, serves at the pleasure of the president in the firmest respect of that phrase, or or for the pleasure of the president, as as you say. The the question I have then is, what's the solution? I mean, do we separate out the attorney general? How, I mean, because as long as it's a cabinet level provision under Article 2 and it's part of the executive, the president's going to appoint, the Senate is going to confirm and advise and consent the president on his nomination. How do you stop this? There's going to be some very big questions asked 
and uh, at the end of the Trump administration, whenever that might be, hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, but we haven't seen any of this since Richard Nixon, and a lot of the 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 guardrails that were put in uh, specifically in response to the abuses of the Nixon administration, even though Nixon wasn't the only person to do it, he was uh, probably one of the most abusive uh, people to use it. Um, the After J. Edgar Hoover left the uh, FBI, the FBI... The director of the FBI had a term, has a term that was, was it uh, seven years, 10 years? Yeah, which can be at the pleasure of the president extended, as we saw with Right. How, however, part of the reason for the, for the purpose of that extension or that, that length of time is to put him outside of the political camp, the presidential campaign cycle. So the director of the FBI is supposed to be above politics. And Donald Trump is the first person to have tested it with the firing of Comey. So is, but to Aaron's point from before, so is the Secretary of State, so is the Secretary of Defense, so is the Secretary of Homeland Security. Right, but the difference is the there are laws that prevent some of those folks from hap, from working domestically against your enemies. Um, if the Department of Justice is your lackey, if the FBI director is your lackey, there is not much to prevent somebody from using those forces purposely against people that are their political enemies. This is exactly what was feared under J. Edgar Hoover for the files that we never saw the inside of. But J. Edgar Hoover stuck around for an awful long time right. because of those files. And hence that fear. And there's, as far as I know, a bipartisan solution that we needed to have the FBI director be a different creature outside of politics. But doesn't that... But, okay. uh, let me finish. All you, right. you are correct. Our constitutional structure has three branches of government. You can choose legislative, executive, or judicial. Right. So the question is whether or not we need a fundamental revamping of how we handle certain things in our government including the Department of Justice and potentially the FBI. Do we need a fourth branch that is removed from the from the executive branch entirely? You're talking about rewriting the Constitution. You're talking about a constitutional amendment. Well, in Virginia, they just said that ERA is going to pass. So, And do you think that that's – and do you think that the, the – the, Thurgood Marshall said the Constitution was flawed from its beginning, re- requiring a Bill of Rights and – then what are we at? Twenty-seven amendments now. Right. The yep. so, so the seventeen additional amendments beyond that. Yes, we are looking for a more perfect union. To yes, we have we have problems. We fix them. And Donald Trump is pushing every possible lever and every issue that we clearly need to respond to. Rich, you agree? Yeah. No. Absolutely. And there. I mean, obviously, an amendment process is a Herculean task. That's why you've only had 17 since the Bill of Rights. You've had, you know, there's always a balanced budget amendment, for example, that comes close. There's all these other um, amendments to, you know, to, to, um, to, uh, to eliminate the Electoral College. There's always school prayer. There's always amendments that come through, but very rarely do they actually pass. In terms of the ERA, they've actually you're, just recently extended Rich, the deadline for but it. But, Rich, you're talking, you're talking about uh, it took us, what, 40 years almost to pass the Equal Rights Amendment? And that's kind of a no-brainer in my mind. And I'm a Republican saying that. Well, I'm at not, the time, there, was, there were some like <laughs> Phyllis, Schlafly, Phyllis Schlafly, the Eagle Forum. 
there were definitely <laughs> opponents of it, and then you had on the others, but there were a lot of it, most of the establishment. I know that Jimmy Carter was literally calling members of the state legislature trying to beseech him to vote for it. It came that close. Right, but it, it's taken us 40 years. Ford was for it, yeah. But it's taken us 40 years to get this far, as Aaron was pointing out. Oh, it still yeah, hasn't passed. Ex- no, it's extreme. It's a, it, it is an extremely um, Herculean move to get to get it to get it through because that's why we've only had 17 since the bill of rights and you look at the thousands and thousands of them that that people have proposed i remember jesse jackson jr for example when he was in congress used to propose every year a uh, used to propose a constitutional amendment to guarantee health care for every american citizen and that never right. went beyond either congressional or progressive caucus so you know it has to be something that's very mainstream it has to be something that has overwhelming support amongst the American people, and there has to be some sort of a groundswell of support saying we need this right now right. to the point that members of the Senate and the House of Representatives have to support it, and then it has to go to the states, and the states have to, the states have to support it just to right. be right. arduous right. process. And, they can and there's take none the that are really <laughs> good under the ERA. They're, right, they're was it close to passing right now. Five years ago, finally got around to ratifying the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments? Yeah, yeah. It took them, that, it took them hundreds of years. Well, hundred at least. <laughs> Well, another... you know, the third the third amendment says that you cannot quarter soldiers in somebody's um, house without their consent. I right. believe. Aaron, last word. Go ahead. Oh well, I think another interesting development to just give Virginia some credit is um, the election um, uh, requirement for the the popular vote. So, uh, was it end of last week that? Oh, yeah. So the, the, the Virginia national, national popular vote. Oh, yeah. the national popular yeah. They, they, no, Virginia awarded, they're going to award all of the uh, electoral votes. Uh, to, it's, an all or, it's an all or none state. Yeah. So so I, I, I'm not sure of the state. No, no, not all or none state. To be clear, if, if a different person wins Virginia, if the person who wins Virginia loses the popular vote, they don't get Virginia's delegates according to the Virginia law. Right. Well, that is that's going to be a big, big change. Yeah, but that's well, going to also be hard to, that's going to be a court battle. Well, what it is, is every state, essentially, it only happens, every state that agrees to the, that, that agrees, once it reaches the requisite 270 electoral votes to win, it kicks in, so no state would do it unilaterally. Right. Well, and how many states have... have so is this the Electoral uh, College? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's a whole yeah, Well, it's totally different, but, but, but that's a whole I, I think I, I only mention it because I think it's a it's an interesting example of states using their their powers to try to circumvent some of these constitutional issues that we've been encountering. And, you know, we'll see what happens. I'm not sure how many states have right. passed this measure. But right. well, to be clear, there's nothing that says that the presidential electors need to be selected democratically. Right, that's true. No, right. not at all. If you go right. back to 1789, that's not how <laughs> Rich, they were appointed. Rich, Rich, okay. I gotta go to break. That's the sound. Okay. That's the music. We gotta go to break. Hey, we're gonna talk uh, a little international affairs when we come back. Uh, in case you don't know it, Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Esper are over in Europe on a bunch of different discussions. They're not going well. Go ask uh, Lindsey Graham. Backroom politics. Stay with us. Now I'm disgusted. I found him out. Had a show down. When I think of him, how much I love him. I got a desperate notion. That's the way I feel today. My heart is aching because he's making a plaything of my devotion. That's the way I feel today. Without any reason or a word to say, that man turned his keys in. He packed and went away. What good is living? I'll soon be giving my body up to the ocean. That's the way I feel today. 
Podcast Village, Upper Georgetown, Washington, D.C. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. It's Backroom Politics with your host and moderator, Justin Russell. Hey, actually, we're in Studio B as we record this one, just for clarity. Um, but yes, we are the best political. We are still the best political podcast you've never downloaded. In studio, I've got <clears throat> I've got Dan Lipner, I've got Aaron Harbaugh, I've also got Tom the intern. Hey, Tom. Hey there. Are you enjoying this? This is great. Isn't yeah. this cool? Uh, we've got Rob the engineer on the board. We've also got Charlie Bernie, our illustrious benefactor and, and and host here at Podcast Village. Somewhere in there is Maddie. Is Maddie in there too? I don't she's see making she's making some deals in the other room. Oh, is she really? Well, yeah. Oh, she's dealing with the important people. We, have, we, we have to leave it at that. We can't say much more about it. But that's all I can say. Wow, is this going to require a presidential pardon? I said I can't say anything else. Oh, come on, I deal in intelligence. Is hey. that who those Ukrainians were that I saw? What? No, stop. Just stop. Maddie is a saint. You don't you don't you don't include her with the term Ukrainians. Uh, hey, you know what? Here's the funny thing about it is, uh, in case you didn't notice, because of everything else happening in the world, uh, Secretary Esper, the Secretary of Defense for Donald Trump, and Secretary Pompeo, Secretary of State for President Trump, is in Europe for some high-level discussions that have covered everything from a possible deal with the Afghans and the Taliban to a possible flare-up between Secretary Esper and... And Senate uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, big stuff happening in Europe. Um, Aaron, I, I want to talk a little bit about this flare-up between Secretary Esper and Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Apparently, the the argument is over the possibility. That the Trump administration is going to remove DOD troops from Africa and basically neutralize or even shut down <clears throat> AFRICOM, the African command, which was stood up uh, several years ago and seems to have been very effective Under as the, a DOD uh, unit. the W. Bush administration, I right, believe. Yeah. Right, right, right. Why is this such a political hot potato? How important... Is Africa and AFRICOM into our national economy and our national strategy? Are you asking me personally for my opinion or, yeah. or, well, or from, generally rhetorically? No, I mean, I'm how asking, important it is to, to Trump's administration? I don't know. No, no, but no, but, no. I mean, you worked at the State Department. I mean, why is Africa so important? Well, I... I I'm not an Africa specialist. I am, you know, like many foreign policy, quote unquote, experts, uh, I'm kind of a, a jack of all trades and master of none. But, um, you know, what I, I can cite is the emphasis and the money that the Obama administration invested, well, as well as the W. Bush administration invested in Africa and many several, you know, very high level events drawing um, investments and attention to the region. I think that Africa has become a very important geostrategic and economic partner over the last 10 years. And this is certainly a diversion from Trump's predecessors. Dan Lipner, I mean, the, the idea, I mean, after we've seen George W. Bush put all kinds of money to fight AIDS in Africa. We saw the Obama administration make economic development in Africa a key issue. Uh, we saw 
even some indication that even the Trump administration was looking at Africa as a market source for U.S. goods in case we got into a pissing match with China and our European allies. Why, why would the president want to take Africa out of the mix? Because he's an idiot. Um, no, no. Thank, thank you very much. That you no, can so, only get. So you actually said the magic word just passing through it. Um, the real issue is China's interest in Africa is huge. Let's be clear: Africa is the largest continent on the planet by far. Right. On top of that, aside from the. Oh, going out on a limb here. I don't know the the entire population of the continent of Africa. I'm going to go well over a billion. Um, it's also has a lot of resources, an awful lot of resources. And once you start playing that out between a global powers and what's at play, both in, on free market economies and some of those resources that uh, there are certain dependencies that are those high-tech gadgets that, you know, fly around in space for, say, Space Command and for the, you know, militaries around the world, suddenly the U.S. interest becomes pretty important pretty clearly. Um, the idea that the president wants to continue his uh, Fortress America pulling everything back into American borders, uh, a la Rand Paul and uh, that, that band of folks, is simply insane. The idea that the United States doesn't have a vested interest that is huge in the region is pretty damn important. And the president pulling back is is dangerous. Now, Lindsey Graham apparently has finally found something where he's realized that, hey, you know, we really need to fight for this because United U.S. security is literally at play. If we don't have boots or at least the ability to put boots on the ground with some sort of military intelligence at work, it's dangerous for our national but, interest. Right. But, Aaron, I mean, this is all happening at the Munich Security Conference, which happens every year. Every, is it every year or every I believe two years? every year. Anyway, it, it, it's a big deal. I mean, the, 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 the global heads of national security and national strategy all show up here. We've got uh, Secretary of State, Secretary of, um, Secretary of Defense. Uh, I believe we've got an entire delegation, including uh, Republicans and Democrats over there as part of the congressional side of the House. Um, <clears throat> the fact that there is that much turmoil in our own delegation at this conference, is that a sign that says, hey, our domestic programs might be working, but we've got a real problem internationally? Well, yeah, I think we have a problem internationally, but I think uh, having a delegation like that, having served on many delegations to high-level meetings at the United Nations and to uh, other other countries' uh, bilateral missions, I think that that's a problem domestically when you don't have a unified front, especially on important geostrategic matters. That's but, that's a problem. But the optics on this, the optics <laughs> on this can't give our allies any reassurance. No. No, and and I think that they're, um, you know, we're, well, we're losing credibility, and I think that's that's a pretty obvious statement to make. Um, our our partners and allies in, in Europe and and elsewhere are very smart, and they can see right through these, and they do look at these 
small indicators as to what is happening in the larger picture at home. Dan Lipner, I mean, especially with the fact that you've got an administration that really takes a stronghold on how it's demolished or hampered down Islamic extremists, as they would call it. You've got Boko Haram, you've got ISIS in Africa, you've got Al-Qaeda on the African continent. Al-Shabaab. Al-Shabaab. You've got all kinds of different threats to our national security and the national interests on continent. Why broadcast and telegraph this move knowing full well that this could be a, a resurgence of something that could pose even here on our own homeland a national security threat. And I can go back to my previous point that the president's an idiot in making Secretary <laughs> Esper carry water that I can't imagine he actually wants to carry. But, but Secretary but, Pompeo but, but, is part of this delegation. But, but linking this to our previous conversation, this is actually well within the president's purview. While I can vehemently disagree with it, and seemingly most people who have some grasp of how foreign policy works disagree with it. That said, this is well within the president's purview, and this is, is this not the something beginning? the American public gets. Is this the, the isolationist wing of the Republican Party, <clears throat> which is the Rand Paul wing, which is not inconsequential? Uh, that that America First crowd that wants Fortress America does not has no concept uh, that the uh, United States having arms that can extend beyond our borders in a in a meaningful way actually makes us more secure here at home. But Rich Rubino, historically, whenever we've gone to this America first, Fortress America, isolationist, we can go all the way back to World War One and see where that has been a flaming foreign policy disaster that draws us into a much larger conflict, i.e. World War One, World War Two. The global war on terror. I mean, you can, we can name any of them. Well, in terms of World War One, I, I mean, of course, there are two arguments in that. Part of the argument is that the um, reparations that the Allies made the that the Allies made the German pay Germans pay them essentially is what established well, Adolf Hitler and what he well, used as kind of his cause of ballet to come into power. Right, right. And then that's, that's but, so there are other arguments. In right. That. The but, other thing is, but, I wouldn't call it, I wouldn't call it isolationism. I call it non-interventionism. There's a difference there. Isolationism, I think of, if you take that literally, that would mean you have no relationship whatsoever with other countries. I think most countries, they would have relationships with other countries under a non-interventionist <clears throat> philosophy. What you would not, you would certainly, you would still trade with other countries. You would establish, you would still have diplomatic relations with other countries, like Switzerland does, for example. What you wouldn't have is you would not intervene in other countries' affairs. Right. And I think <laughs> what people like Rand Paul see is I think what they will, what they, what, more so Ron Paul than Rand Paul, by the way. Rand Paul's a lot less non-interventionist than I think his father was. But what he would say is that 9-11 was led because of U.S. foreign policy, and they would probably point to Osama bin Laden's fatwa where he talked about, for example, but, but, the US, but, United States troops being on Saudi but every soil. Time, but every time, Rich, the point I'm trying, to, I'm trying to get at is every time that we have decided to Whatever we want to call it, isolate or separate ourselves or not get involved, it's drawn us always into a larger, more global conflict that causes the loss of life of our service members. No, we're still looking. You're still looking at this too narrowly. Why? Because the idea that if we don't do it, nobody's going to do it is simply false. Why? There are, do you there are other players out there 
the China China's uh, one belt, what's what's called the one belt one road right uh, initiative is partially including Africa. It literally wants all supply chains to lead to China. This is not an insignificant thing. China is literally building a process to try and make them the center and by, and by of the, way, the world. And it's not just the Chinese. And it, no, no, our that, European note, allies. note the word that I'm dropping off of that. The free world is not part of that statement. Well, wait a minute. Our, wait a minute. I, well, I look at I Germany. I look at Germany. I look at the UK. I look at France. I look at Italy. I look at all those big corporate entities that come out of those big EU nations that are making investments in the African market. We're not. I see well, I China. Just- I, hold on. I see China making yeah. all kinds of investments into the Africa. I mean, they if there's a port, a deep water port, if there's infrastructure being built, nine times out of ten, it's got Chinese money 100% behind it. Our money's not there. We're not investing in that. We're going to get our asses handed to us in Africa. I mean, Rich, go with your yeah, point. I would just. I would, I would differentiate. This is where I think there's a difference between non-interventionism and isolationism. Obviously, there's a relationship with trade, but I think that our interventionism can actually cause unintended consequences and blowback as well. And the perfect example of that, I think, once again, is our policy in the Middle East, the sanctions we had in Iraq in the 1990s under President George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, and the fact that we were supporting some autocratic regimes is what propelled Osama bin Laden to unify yeah, the Shia not, and Sunni community. We're not against engaging. Us yeah, but Rich, we're not engaging in sanctions against any. That's I mean, what I'm saying. Yeah, right. That's what I'm saying. There's a difference between intervene. There's a difference between intervening for our own interests, for that matter, humanitarian aid. That's why we're so. We're so. That's why we're very popular in parts of Africa because Bill Clinton and George H. W. Bush, the AIDS pro, the AIDS program. We, put, we, we, we sent a lot of money in there, and even a lot of Muslim countries in Southeast Africa are very, are very fond of the United States for that. That's different. Yeah, and some of them, Trump has banned for travel What's purposes. And, and some of these countries, I mean, recently have been, uh, you know, under the travel ban. And right. they're Syria, increasingly example. becoming. Yes. Yeah. Right. But, 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 he, but here's the thing is, though, the, the, the bottom line is when – we're not talking about sanctions. We're talking about just simple economic development. This is this is Charlie Wilson's mantra all over again. We are screwing up the end game. The best thing we can do is make investments in those markets, get our money flowing. It helps us economically. It possibly creates jobs over there. We look good doing it, and we've got a brand new market for our goods and services, and yet if we're the big economic 300-pound gorilla on the map, we're get, again, we're getting beat in that market it's space. It's a 250-pound gorilla that's doing just fine without us there. Yeah. So the question is whether or not we want to be there. and We the, have to be there. I'm. We, we all seemingly are in agreement here. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. The, the, the only question good is, policy. <laughs> is whether or not Lindsey Graham is uh, – Willing to take his fight beyond Secretary Esper, who's simply only carrying the water for an isolationist president. Now that I, that's a problem. Well, Aaron? is this is this isolationist, or I mean, if you want to take a cynical, a yeah. more cynical view, um, is this just Trump not deeming Africa to be in his personal business interests? You mean shithole diplomacy? Yeah. Is, 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 I, I mean, I, I I think you could look at it and say, well, Trump is you know per his 
own calculations doesn't seem to deem the continent worthy of uh, his uh, time, uh, energy, and attention, you know, and resources, which seem to be an important part of his well, presidency. Of, <clears throat> um, I think that you can, you know, I mean, look at mines, it that simplistically. I agree. I agree. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying this is my own personal opinion. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, trade economic development is is just good policy. I, I also want to raise the coronavirus epidemic and looking back to Ebola and why we need a presence in terms of national security, international security in Africa. Oh, yeah, you know, no, is, is Afri- also no, no, your point is correct. public Africa public health. Did a lot yes, to, absolutely. And to I want to cite that right. as, right. as, you know, in terms of uh, Americans looking at this calculation, I mean, you know, our health at home, you know, this is not an intentional outbreak. It's not a, 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 a man-made disaster, but it can be exacerbated when we don't have the right people on the ground, the right protections, the right communications through other organizations like the World Health Organization and other governments. If we don't have the relationships there, we're not, you know, conducting robust foreign policy and, you know, we don't have these dialogues going and these relationships strong, we're screwing our own people. Right. I mean, Dan, Rich Ravina, you said you had a you had a comment. Oh, no, but I will comment, though. I just think that, again, once again, there's a differentiation between isolationism and non-interventionism. And I think that – but I think in terms of Lindsey Graham, by the way, I saw him in New Hampshire, and he had a Trump train um, – he had a Trump train jacket, and he was doing a surrogate for Donald Trump. My guess is that any independence he shows from Donald Trump um, is going to do – is going to have deleterious effects on the South Carolina reelection campaign. So um, he's going he's gonna to try to do as little as possible – on that score, but yeah, no, there is a there is a there is a difference, and sometimes I think that when we intervene in other countries' affairs, it comes back to haunt hey, us Rich, eventually. Rich, and the other Rich. example is just say with Charlie Wilson, um, you know, certainly the support we gave to the Mujahideen, eventually, un, un, certainly we had no intention of doing it at the time, but eventually that propped up Osama bin Laden and what became Al Qaeda, and then that essentially essentially led to led inadvertently to 9/11. Go ahead. So. Uh, I, I I hear you. I hear what you're saying about your distinction, but it's not clear to me that this president is both non-interventionist and isolationist. So if you can point to anything where he's episodic, episodic. (laughs) Now he's just making up words. Now he's just making up words. And what the episode being the the whether or not there's a Trump hotel. That has part to do with it, but also I think it has a lot of it has to do with whether he personally. I think, I think the word likes you're looking for leaders and what his political standing is. I think the word you're looking for is transactional, not episodic. Well, that too. Yeah, I mean, this is a reality show president. Episodic yeah. is episodic is, could be effective. I mean, but 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 here's the bottom line: but this is long term dangerous. But, but here, but, this, that's the oh, thing. It is. I mean, I'll, but how without, is it that, without Alan here pointing out that the Trans Pacific Partnership. The, the one thing that still annoys me from the left that it wasn't mentioned or even from the right as a as a as a Trump a, 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 as a Trump card argument at not Donald Trump right. was yeah. the what happens if the United States doesn't get involved with it, which is an, which is a question that was unasked for all the people who are against it and for the proponents who throwing but it here's at the them. Dumber the thing. correct answer is the Chinese nope. stepped up and took, exactly. took the field. Exactly. And which here's the, is not in the US interest. But here's the dumber thing. Here's the dumber thing about this. Is we're sitting here, we're gonna pull out of Africa. By the way, that was the, that some of that nationalism stuff that Trump claims to be in favor of. Right. 
being in favor of U.S. national interests, yeah. not white nationalism where Trump's try, trying oh, to get no, his but vote. No, but no, when no, you but say he, white nationalism, I mean, some people would point to this and say, well, Trump is just racist. Well, I'm not going to call mean, the president. No, no, I'm, I'm no, 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 but I, I think I, that's, I, no, no I mean, not that we need to have I'm a conversation that on that, but I, I think that, that that is a valid no. point, that that his, his worldview is colored, so to speak. No. By his I, racial you know views. I, I, no, I'm not. I'm not going to play that. I, I, you know what? I, I hear that enough, and 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 that demagoguery does serves no good. I'm not. Oh, gonna, I'm, not I'm not saying I, know, I agree I, with that, the, but I, I think I that's you. that's something but that's that that a lot of people the, look, think. I, I don't. I don't think. I don't. I, I don't know what the reasoning is behind this. It makes no sense to me at the same national conference or the same national international security conference in Munich, where we're announcing that we're going to pull out of such a hotbed of extremist activity as Africa, and we're going to sit there and make a deal with the uh, Taliban, the Afghan government, saying we're going to pull out of there and let you guys have at it, does not make a lot of national security sense to me as somebody who has actually served and been a part of the national defense strategy of this country for the past 30 years, I will tell you, this is a big problem. This does not make sense. I now see why Esper's Fed, I, I now see why we've had more than any other time in my history, more national security rotations out of this administration than we've ever seen before. This is not a safe situation we're in. And it doesn't make sense to me. I agree. It doesn't make any sense. And and the thing is, you know, do we try to make sense of it? I mean, I'm just raising— Well, we have to. Possi- we, we, possibilities. I mean, I think these this are is all— the, This is international policy. This I, is absolutely. Policy this is my out. life. I right. mean, international security policy, you know, that's what I've been devoting the last 20 years of my life to. So this, you know, obviously is near and dear to my heart as well. Um, and it's very disturbing. It's, it's extremely disturbing. And— you know, I, I think there there aren't really any rational reasons that we can figure out. I think you know that is the d- most disturbing part. So wh- if it's if it's not a rational reason, what is it? What what is you know what is going through these guys' heads? Right. Mm-hmm. Because I think you know we, we we don't have the capacity to understand that somehow, and that's that's very disturbing. <laughs> hey, I got uh, I got somebody who was listening to we we do this obviously as a podcast, but you can listen to us record live on Tuesdays between the hours of four and six on our Twitter feed if you so desire. And somebody who's listening to us live on our Twitter feed said, "You're not going to talk about Bolton's book uh, appearance yesterday." And. <laughs> uh, Okay, here's what we're going to do. Are you, Dan, we're going to do this because we've only got like two minutes, 30 seconds left in this podcast. Uh, Dan Lipner, are you, do you want to read John Bolton's book? Yes, ideally when it's read fully into the congressional record. <laughs> <laughs> do you really think it's going to be read? Is literally, I give you... Uh, I for the record, promise you, a Democrat is going to have it introduced in total. <laughs> the entire the, book? I promise you somebody's going to do that. <laughs> you Richard, don't even have to buy it on Audible. Rich, Richard Bino, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Richard Bino, are you going to read uh, John Bolton's book? Uh, yes, or I'll listen to it on uh, on books on tape, one of the two. Okay. Uh, Aaron? Heck, yeah. I have his, his last book, We Shall Not Surrender, about his time— uh, you know, with the Iran negotiations. So, oh, to be clear, uh, and, and let me again, it's, go it's on a the good record. read. I think John Bolton is, 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 is a he crazy is man, smart. but I don't think he's a dishonest, and I think he's a smart guy. I don't think I don't think he's crazy. I think he he's he's really hawkish, but I wouldn't call him crazy. He's got a temper. He, 
Oh, yeah. He's an anathema to everything the Trump administration, Donald Trump ran on, which is why it's fascinating that Donald Trump brought him into his administration, because he's a George W. Bush neocon, which is the opposite of what Donald Trump is. Wow, that, that could be the best description of John Bolton I've ever heard. <laughs> we got to red flag that one. Okay. Um, last, uh, last question. Charlie, are you going to read the book? Of, co- yeah, of you're course on. I am. I, I, of course I'm going to read the book, Justin. Have you pre-ordered it? No. No. He's going to read it to my son when he's here next week. He's going to read it. Oh, really? Yes. He's going to read it to Isaac? Is he doing in my nursery conscience? rhymes voice. Yeah, he did, that's where he, he was talking oh, he yesterday. Was. Oh, okay. he, he, that, he was talking yesterday down in, was, was it Duke? He was down at one of the Carolina schools, I think. No, I mean like a like a reading, like politics no, oh, no. and prose or you know, something like the, that. Jumble is going to go to politics and prose. Background politics. <laughs> yeah. No, they broadcast that stuff on C-SPAN. Ooh, do you think? No, I know they do. But, but yeah, people John Bolton, love that. John Bolton is not politics and prose reading. Well, who knows? He's, no. he's, he's no. done some surprising things in the past. But, d- but Dan gave us... Okay, Tom the intern. Tom the intern. This is this is what you're going to do this week, okay? All right. By the way, where, where are you from, by the way, Don? Massachusetts. You are from... Oh, you're a asshole oh. like me. Oh, yeah. Yay. <laughs> from the easy. home of Six Flags. No, we're not doing this now. Yeah. We're still on air real quick. <laughs> okay. Uh, you're, so you're from Aguam, Massachusetts. What are you studying? Poli Sci. Oh, nice. All right. Here's your... Here is... If you want a guaranteed A... Yeah, John if you Bolton. want a, yeah, exactly, if you want a guaranteed A, and be the hero of every intern at AU, which is where you're doing this program through, you book me John Bolton. <clears throat> you book me John Bolton phone interview. That's it, five minutes. You give me a five minute phone interview with John Bolton. I guarantee you an A, and hell, I'll just pay you too. I'll see what I can do. <laughs> <laughs> that was that was a hugely political move. Wow, that was awesome. Okay. Uh, that's it. On behalf of Dan Lipner, Aaron Harbaugh, Rich Rubino, Tom the intern. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate it. Uh, Charlie Bernie, our man behind the glass and our host here. Uh, oh, Maddie the engineer's here. Hey, Maddie. And Rob the engineer also. We are the best political t- podcast you've never downloaded. You can download us on your favorite streaming app, whether it is Google, Spotify, Apple, whatever it is. We're kind of a big deal now. Follow us on Twitter at Backroom Politics. You can also follow us on our Facebook account, facebook.com slash backroompoliticsradio. Go to all of our library of episodes at backroompolitics.org. Soon, soon, soon. Right, Tom? Our our Patreon page coming up. Yes, yeah, we got to Yeah, we got. This is not cheap. We got to pay this stuff. Aim from Studio B here in Podcast Village. This is Backroom Politics. Have a great week, America. See you.